This is a podcast by The Straits Times. The English Premier League season is finally here and if your view is still fuzzy and unclear, maybe because of the local broadcast issues, let us try to give you more clarity on the season ahead as we gaze into our crystal ball. My name is Azali Abdulaziz from the Straits Times Sports Desk and on this episode of ST Sports Talk, I am joined by reporter Deepan Raj Ganesan with me in the studio as well as a guest all the way from London, ST columnist John Bruin. Hello John and welcome to our podcast. Hello there, uh, thanks for having me on. Now before we go into dissecting uh, the weekend's action, can you maybe introduce yourself a bit to our readers and listeners uh, and how you came to, to be ST's EPL columnist. Oh, you want to, you want me to run through a bit of personal history, do you? Okay. Sure, yeah. uh, I'm a London-based journalist, though. I'm originally from the north of England. I'm from a town called Macclesfield, which is probably not that well known in Singapore. I'll be, I'll be quite honest with you, but uh, near Manchester is the normal answer there. I during my career, I used to, uh, I, I was the editor of Soccernet, uh, which became ESPN FC, and I've worked for. Well, quite just about everybody over the years, but uh, that includes BBC, Sky Sports. Um, I currently work quite a lot for The Guardian. How did I come to this job? Well, uh, my predecessor in this position, uh, Richard Jolly, uh, has been a close colleague and friend for 20 years. And on his patronage, do I find myself with you today? Uh, So thank you, Richard. A A great man, a great writer. And I'm walking in on the shoulder of a giant now, if I may say. Well, you're filling in very nicely indeed. You were at Craven Cottage for the Fulham-Liverpool game. Let's get right into it. Maybe that's the best place to start. You know, how shocked were you by the result at full-time there? Oh, yeah. Well, um, from the outset, I should say, a magnificent game. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, really, really exciting. And the credit for that belongs with Fulham. And I saw a bit of Fulham last season. In fact, I saw the game uh, in which they were promoted. To Marco Silva, the manager's credit, they seem to go at Liverpool in the same fashion they went at opposition in the Championship. Played their own game, closed down the opposition, worked very, very hard in midfield. It was much the same team as uh, Marco Silva selected last season, but with two crucial additions. And I think these these two players are particularly important. Joe Palina, a guy they got from Sporting Lisbon, who looked really, really good, who looked a level above and the likes of uh, Thiago and Jordan Henderson struggled with him. And then Andres Pereira, who Manchester United fans may recall as a player who of talent, but inconsistency as well. But I saw Pereira play a game that I must confess I, I didn't realise he was quite capable of. Brilliant, brilliant He had a great game, very hard-working, good passing, took a lot of the set pieces. Uh, Of course, up front, Fulham have a a striker in Alexander Mitrovic, who scored 43 goals last season. There's been a doubt over the years about him since he he came to Newcastle a few years back, whether he was good enough for Premier League level. Well, in that game, he terrorised the best central defender in the Premier League. That's Virgil van Dijk. Van Dijk had no answer to him. Um, Trent Alexander-Arnold, well... There are always questions over his defending, aren't there? And uh, on the back post, presented with the sight of a marauding Mitrovic running towards him. I don't think Trent fancied that. And uh, Mitrovic scored. Casting onto Liverpool, well, Jurgen Klopp certainly seemed most concerned with their performance after the game. And with good reason, because it was his experienced players that really let him down. As I mentioned, Henderson and, and, and Thiago in midfield, uh, Van Dijk, Trent Alexander-Arnold, Firmino played up front. 
had a poor game. And it took Darwin Nunez's arrival to change things, really, and, and, and give him a bit of focus, give him a bit of energy. He also brought on James Milner, um, you know, a very experienced player. But then he brought on players like Harvey Elliott, Fabio Carvalho, both ex-Fulham players, and that got them back into the game. Now, Jordan Henderson hit the bar in the last minute, and uh, Jurgen Klopp was complaining about the penalty that Van Dijk gave away and suggested that Henderson had been fouled in the build-up to Mitrovic's first goal. But it's at the same time, he was able to say uh, with all equanimity that Liverpool didn't deserve more than a draw from that game. But as early seasons go, early season matches go, uh, I, I think I've described it in my piece for the Observer, a, a minor classic, and I'll stick by that. And you mentioned, you know, how Klopp was concerned and uh, I think one of the words or, or rather one of the terms that he used to describe the performance was massively improvable. Do you think that this sluggish start, this, this poor body language uh, will be rectified immediately or, or will it linger on for a few games? Well, that actually is the question, isn't it? I think, OK, Jurgen Klopp is, we know, the best man manager in the game. If you think back to Liverpool had that open-top bus tour around Liverpool after they came back from the Champions League final to celebrate what actually had been a successful season despite missing out on the Premier League and Champions League. And Klopp was put on this veneer of everything being so wonderful uh, and, you know, we've had a great time. And I think that that was Klopp's attempt to keep the spirit going, keep uh, the the dander up or, or however you want to phrase that. I'm not sure that everyone else in that team or within that group, shares that. And also, speaking to a couple of Liverpool fans before and after the game, there is something of a hangover from last season. There is also the aspect that I think, uh, well, one of the stats that was that was floated on me yesterday was that they played the most amount of 30-plus players that they have since 1994. So this is an experienced team, which counts for a lot and could be a good thing, but it might also be a tired team, considering they played let's say, 65 matches last season uh, in, in a relatively thin squad. They have a lot that they're, uh, that sense of spirit, I suspect, and I'm sure we'll get onto this, that won't have been helped by what they saw happen at, at the London Stadium and Manchester City just breezed to a win. In a title race where 90-plus points is the target, even in this World Cup truncated season, dropping two points at Fulham, it's a bad result and with a bad performance... Yeah, Klopp has a big job on his hands already. Yeah, you mentioned the, the number of games and, and I would say maybe even the style of Liverpool's game sort of works against them. Deepen, do you think that uh, this is something that they will fix soon? Look, I, I think when you look at Liverpool uh, against Fulham in, in that particular game, I, I thought that Liverpool was surprised by the intensity that Fulham brought to the game. Uh, I don't think Jurgen Klopp's men expected that from Fulham. Uh, they would have expected Fulham to be a bit more direct, uh, try to sit back and then hit them uh, on the counter. But actually, Fulham brought the intensity, like I said. And and John mentioned players like Palhinha, uh, Andres Pereira. These are players, you know, you you wouldn't have expected them to start with the intensity that they did in the first game. So I, I choose to believe rather that, you know, this was a one-off for Liverpool. They were, they were, you, don't, you don't usually link the word complacency with them, but this was what it was. And and I don't think this will linger on uh, for much longer because if there's any coach in the world that will, you know, remove uh, any form of complacency from the squad, uh, it is Jurgen Klopp. Yeah, so John mentioned how, you know, last season's champions, Man City, got off to the perfect start with a sound win over West Ham. Erling Haaland, of course, hit the ground running with two goals and Kevin De Bruyne looked close to his best. 
Could this end up being a straightforward title defence uh, for them, Deepen? Look, uh, first of all, Manchester City were tremendous against Hammers. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, people will say that West Ham didn't really bring much to the tie. But I thought the way in which Manchester City controlled the game was really remarkable. Uh, when you talk about the title defence, uh, you know, who comes close... Of course, you know, at the start of the season, before the first game, uh, you would say Liverpool would be the closest challengers. Uh, or rather, most people would say that. But I actually think that Spurs will be the closest challengers for City this season. Uh, I think they've added well in terms of the, the strength in depth. Uh, Richarlison is coming in and you see how in the first game of the season, Kulusevski is, you know, he knows Richarlison is is there for, for, for his spot. And I think they've added well and I think Spurs are still in the market for more players. So I do expect Spurs to, to come closest to, to City. But you look at the kind of performance that City put out against Hammers is going to take a lot to, to stop City from you know uh, winning the title again. Okay, we'll talk about the other contenders in just a bit. But John, what did you think uh, about City's performance against West Ham? Well, uh, it was an incredibly professional performance from Manchester City, wasn't it? I don't think entertainment levels were particularly high. There was an awful lot of the ball being passed around and also the poor Jack Grealish. Remember Jack Grealish, that really exciting player that used to play for Aston Villa? Would surge past people, have people out of the seats. It does, doesn't it? He's just getting the ball, keeping it simple. But what what happened in that game is, I think there was a, watching the game on, on Sky over here and uh, Gary Neville was the commentator and there was a point I think it was in the first half they, they showed the amount of passes completed and it was West Ham 40 Manchester City 340 and the word Gary Neville used was brutal and I think that's correct and that, that West Ham couldn't get near it but having said that at the point in which West Ham started to look as they could get into the game that's when City go down the other end Harlan wins a penalty from you know a great pass through the middle, and the same goes for the goal that he scored. It appears to me that almost City, with their passing, were able to to draw West Ham out. And then once you've got Haaland, you've got that added weapon. As soon as space opens up, he's going to burst through and score. I was one of those that joined this group of people doubting whether Haaland could work out. We're all ready to make to look a little bit stupid, aren't we? Because if all goes well, and you know, there's a lot of other factors involved. You know, there's a possibility he might not settle in Manchester. There may be a temperament issue on all that. But when you put it down to the absolute basics of football, the formula looks there for Manchester City to destroy teams. Now, West Ham are not a poor team by any sense. They've had two really good seasons. There is a slight doubt over whether... Uh, they can push on this season, West Ham being West Ham, three consistent seasons in a row, unheard of in their entire history. Uh, but having said that, they were taken apart by you know incisive, surgical stuff from Manchester City. Oh dear, for everybody else really. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. And now, back to our conversation with The Straits Times EPL columnist, John Bruin. Well, Deepen has already said, you know, all the the other so-called top six teams, on the evidence of the opening day, Spurs uh, are his pick to to mount a credible challenge against Liverpool and and Man City for the title. What about you? Uh, Arsenal and Chelsea also won their respective games. Which of these three teams would be your pick? Or do you have more than one as a possible serious challenger? Well, I agree, I agree deep and uh, Tottenham looked the most likely. And I think, I don't think that's that outlandish a prediction because 
Conte arrived last November, had made it clear that if he didn't get what he needed, he might not hang around. And Daniel Levy appears to have delivered pretty much what he needed. Now, you know, my memory of Conte is of Chelsea manager back in the 2016-17 season after a slightly slow start. They hit the ground running. Once Conte gets his team bolted into his his method of playing, it can be irresistible. This is a guy that won the Premier League with Victor Moses playing right back, which, well, it is a little disrespectful to, to Victor Moses, but he isn't a right back. But that's almost like footballing alchemy, really, isn't it? And Tottenham appear to have a, a squad as strong as that with you know very strong forwards, uh, Kuzilevsky, as even said, uh, Richarlison to come in, strength in midfield, a decent defence, experienced goalkeeper, and also someone who is capable of delivering success and has done pretty much everywhere he's been. The problem being that perhaps the uh, fervour with which he drives that success means that he's not there for that long. This is Spurs' big chance, I think, as, as, as a season. We're talking about Arsenal and Chelsea, Arsenal look good at Crystal Palace. Gabriel Jesus is running and he's dribbling. Look fantastic. Still, I still doubt he's finishing a little bit, you know. But Martinelli, um, there was a bad miss from him, wasn't there, before he scored his goal. They've got so much attacking talent. I think they're going to be enjoyable to watch. The defender, William Saliba, I think, is a player that a lot of Arsenal fans have been waiting a long time to see. He's been on loan for three years. Uh, finally, uh, they get to see him and he, he looks the part. And, and Chelsea. Um, now, Chelsea, for me, they're the unknowns, really, because... By the end of this transfer window, uh, what with Todd Bowley appearing to want to bid for every player available in Europe, we, we don't know what the makeup of them is going to be. There's some funny stories around how they might buy Fafana from Leicester for £80 million, which seems incredible. But what you would say about their performance uh, is that uh, considering they lost Rudiger, probably their best defender and one of the best defenders in the league, and Christensen, uh, you know, another key player. They look strong in defence, in attack against Everton. I wasn't quite so sure. They're still lacking the focal point. They're lacking the focal point that they attempted to make Romelu Lukaku has, uh, which obviously didn't work. And as Todd dashes around Europe uh, in his private plane and his sweatpants, we're going to have to see what he can make them. But... um. Yeah, Chelsea could be anything at this point. But a win at Everton is a good result. They traditionally don't do so well up there. Right. You mentioned football alchemy when you were talking about Spurs. One team uh, desperately short of of the right formula right now is uh, Man United. <laughs> um, I think they are one of the the only team in the so-called top six who are already written off by many, including their own fans after a defeat by Brighton at home. I have to say, uh, I was surprised by this given the promise they had shown uh, in pre-season. John, uh, what do you think lies ahead for Eric Ten Hag's men? Oh, dear. Uh, yeah, uh, oh. Uh, oh, dear. Uh, yeah. that, that summarises it. <laughs> um, I was uh, talking to a fellow journalist when I was at Craven Cottage who told me he'd been up to uh, the training ground on Friday for the yeah, pre-match press conference. And it appeared to him uh, that United were sort of running on a bit of a, a, a wing and a prayer, uh, if you understand what I mean, just hoping that things are going to be okay. A sense of optimism, but an optimism without any real grounding. And when I saw that team selection, you know, without a striker, you know, with a false nine, a fairly loose team selection, Lisandro Martinez in midfield, you think, well, well, maybe this could work. 
but within a few minutes after it has to be said, actually a reasonably bright start. Uh, I don't, I don't, I think Brighton were, were a little slow off the blocks and a bit vulnerable in defence. It just came apart. It came apart. It shows that the foundations of the team are so loose. Now, Fred and Scott McTominay, two players who are much criticised on social media and, and by the fans, I think they're both a little unfortunate. In, they're both decent players, but as a pairing, don't particularly work. And probably cast forward a few years, they're going to be regarded as symbolic of this current malaise of Manchester United. But they didn't work as a, as a team. Uh, Lisandro Martinez, well, he had a disastrous debut really didn't he should have given away a penalty as well by the way you know I can't believe that decision wasn't given there was that brief period um after Cristiano Ronaldo came on not really much to do with Cristiano Ronaldo who's touches the ball I'm struggling to recall I have to say but United came into it a bit more and it did feel for that for a brief period that United might be able to keep up those uh all of us are old enough to remember that those days when United would just go and go and wave after wave against the opposition. But it turned out that the reason for that is that two of Brighton's best players on the day, Welbeck and Lallana, got tired. As soon as Brighton's manager, Graham Potter, a very capable manager, had made that change, Brighton locked the game down and United could not get into it. I mean, Ten Hag admitted, didn't he, afterwards, that he's got a big job ahead. The optimism, such as it was extinguished and that th- all those you know <laughs> because after 17 minutes they cut to a picture of Alex Ferguson in the stands and then you have these images well well funny enough you know the first season that David Moyes was uh was manager Ferguson stayed away if I recall correctly he went on a uh, a sailing tour around the Isles of Scotland and then came back but as soon as Ferguson arrived back in the stadium someone had a camera trained on him and it's the same this time and also you had those rather painful contemplative shots of Ten Hag stood isolated on the sidelines. Now, that's his first game. Uh, only Louis van Gaal, of the managers that succeeded Ferguson, lost the first game. I think at that point, as big a job as he, as he will have known Manchester United represents, he'll know even more now, won't he? And as I said, oh dear. Now, when I referenced uh, Man United's own fans earlier, uh, I'm talking about people like Deepen, who is still hurting mm. uh, even today, watching the sight of Danny Welbeck turn into prime, uh, Didier Drogba. Uh, Deeps, what is your take on what ails the Red Devils? You know, you know. I think it's easier to to answer what does not ail them at the moment. Uh, I think when you look at Manchester United, uh, I, I think John was was right when he said that you know this is a, a team that does not have a foundation. Uh, you look at midfield. I was having a conversation with a friend uh, before kickoff, and I was telling him, looking at this midfield, I think there are at least 10 teams in the Premier League who have a better midfield than Manchester United at the moment. And Fred and McTominay are players who have been there for the last three seasons. This is not a problem that has been addressed at all. But you, you know, Sazali, I think what really angers me more than the result was, I think just before kickoff, there was news breaking of Manchester United submitting a bid for Marco Arnautovic. And <laughs> this... <laughs> I can't even explain it. I, I don't even know, you know, what do they see in him? And they talk about a culture reset at Manchester United and they bid for a striker who has clearly had issues with previous managers before. And, and just a 33-year-old, I mean, what is he going to add long-term to the club? And I think John will have his take on this as well. I mean, the fact that in the 
last few seasons we have made bids and, and signed players like Igalo, um, Cavani came in at the wrong side of 30, Falcao is another example and here we are again going for the same approach. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And yet they do seem to have this penchant, don't they, for signing players who used to be good. Now, can we even say that about Arnautovic? I think there was a point where he was quite good back at Stoke and, and West Ham and you know he was part of that Inter Milan squad that, that Jose Mourinho had uh, many years ago now, 12 years ago. And that signing, such as it was, or that idea, smacked of the desperation. And there's, there's another strand to it, perhaps, that they have worked together in the past, I believe, uh, Ten Hag and Arnautovic. Now, one of the things that you get from Manchester United over the last few years about this great rebuilding project is that they're rebuilding scouting networks. They're adding directors of football. There's layer upon layer of developing. And yet the transfers appear to be people that Ten Hag knows. Now, what kind of strategy is that? Now, is it a worse strategy than what's gone on before? Well, no, because those have been a disaster as well. But it's still compared to, say, what Michael Edwards produced at Liverpool, Marina Granovskaya did for, for Chelsea, um, you know, even what's going on at Arsenal at the moment, and particularly at Manchester City, you talk about ten midfields worse than uh, the better than Manchester United's. Well, there's got to be at least ten recruitment departments better than Manchester United's in the Premier League. The thing is, Manchester United do have the money, but they don't have the cachet anymore. And you look at a player like Darwin Nunes that they targeted. You look at a player like Erling Haaland that they were that they targeted. They they're no longer in for players like that. But I would suggest there's a big gap between the Darwin Nunes's and the Erling Haaland's to Marco Arnautovic. How we arrived at that solution, well, we're about to find out, aren't we? Yeah, well, certainly that is a potential transfer that boggles the mind. Uh, moving away from that, another takeaway from the opening day, which might have surprised some, uh, occurred on the opposite end of the table, or rather the teams many expect to be there come the end of the season. Of the three promoted teams, only one, uh, Forest, uh, lost their opening match. Uh, could we see two or, or even all three of these teams uh, stay up? John, what do you think? Well, funny enough, of the three teams uh, that came up, I predicted one to stay up and that was Nottingham Forest. Now, <laughs> uh, let's... But, have you know, on the evidence of what we saw at the weekend, OK, I think Fulham could be OK... I wonder if they could keep up the energy of that performance. You know, it's 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 easy to do it on early season. Yeah. Can you do it in January after a you know a World Cup's been played and you've already played sixteen matches by November? Let's see about that. Bournemouth, Scott Parker, their manager, admits that their squad is actually not as good as the one that got them promoted. But having said that, I think what both Fulham and, and Bournemouth, perhaps the root of their uh, decent performances, good results, was that they were able to try and do what they did last season and uh, with with, the, with pretty much the same squads so with the same team. Um, Nottingham Forest have been very active in the transfer market and it may take a while to bed in the amount of players that they've signed. When I was looking at their transfers over the summer, what they reminded me of actually was Fulham about four years ago. Do you remember when they spent £100 million? on players, and, uh, well, it didn't really happen for them, did it? Mm. And I'd be slightly concerned with Forrest for that. Having said that, Steve Cooper, a very well-thought-of manager, he did a great job for them last season. Yeah, I think he came in almost midway through the season or you know, early on in the season and took them up, doing a great job there. Um, 
They have the capability of staying up. Um, I would still back Bournemouth to be in the bottom three. I think that result against Aston Villa probably says more about Aston Villa than it does about Bournemouth. I think Steven Gerrard may be coming under some pressure should that continue. Um, let's see about Fulham. I'm reasonably hopeful for Forrest despite that result because actually uh, one thing to say is Newcastle are going to be quite decent this season, I think. And I have to say to our listeners, John doesn't know I'm a Newcastle fan, I'm pretty sure. Oh, okay. So, uh, he's not. He's not saying that just to to make me feel good. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if you saw the broadcast over here, but uh, watching match today when I came in from Craven Cottage, uh, Alan Shearer rhapsodizing about Bruno Guimaraes. Uh, he really does look a brilliant player. He really does. He is a class, class, class player. Uh, just quickly, Deepen, what do you think? One, two, three uh, teams staying up or, or none? Yeah, I, I'm I'm with John. I, I actually thought that uh, Forest uh, will be the the best of the three teams that came up. And I mean, you look at the the additions they've had. Um, Forest, I I do think they'll be all right. You know, come end of the season, I can't wait to see Taiwo Awoni play. Um, uh, for them, uh, he's a player I followed a lot in Bundesliga, and and he's he's a good player. And, and yeah, I agree. You know, with Fulham. Can they actually last all the way? Uh, I, I saw, you know, towards the end of the game, and this might be quite harsh, I saw Shane Duffy coming on for, for Fulham. Team Rim, Shane Duffy, are these players going to keep you up? I'm not quite sure. So I, I think Fulham and, and Bournemouth are, are two teams that will go down, you know. And that wraps up our conversation after the first weekend of EPL action. Be sure to read John Bruin's columns in The Straits Times or on straightstimes.com. Uh, thank you so much, John, for joining us and we look forward uh, to your next appearance uh, with us on ST Sports Talk. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.